0: Good morning Gilna Herc, great to be with you this morning. Uh, This is pre-recorded, it's actually Friday evening with us here in California. (coughs) I thought to record this ahead of time rather than try and match the time difference. And as you can see, uh, I'm in what we call in our family the Star Wars room. This was originally the boys room when we moved into this home and uh, it's um, got a Star Wars theme so that's our backdrop today. Uh, and I am very grateful uh, for the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Grateful for the invitation from Drew. Um, it, is, uh, it is a strange time that we're in. Uh, praise the Lord for the wonders of modern technology that even allows us to do something like this. <clears throat> and I can't see you, but you can see me. Um, we miss you all. We love you and we do hope that in the Lord's providence and according to his wisdom at some point in the near future we could be with you in person. This morning I wanted to share with you um, a text from 1st John so if you have a Bible please turn to the letter of 1st John and chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 familiar text 1st John chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. I'll read the text and then I'll pray before uh, we jump in. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 and following. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, Because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We're so thankful to you for your goodness to us. We're grateful for our salvation in Christ. We're grateful for all the blessings that come to us by your hand each and every day. Father, we're grateful that even during this time we can still gather together in a sense uh, and come around your word and submit ourselves to it. And we do pray for your blessing, for your work this morning, Father, that you would lead our hearts and our minds in the way of the truth. I pray that you'd give us clarity in our understanding, that we'd see the truth that is in your word, and that you'd soften our hearts so that we'd receive the truth and that we'd be changed, Father, that you would conform us yet more to the image of your Son, and that you would be glorified as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year I had the privilege of preaching through the whole of First John and um, this text, well known text I came to think of as something of a synopsis of the whole letter Uh, so it's nearly about the halfway point uh, in the letter that this text comes and 12 through 14 may even be indented in your Bible as it is mine the tone changes somewhat at this point and as I reflected upon this text and as I preached this text it occurred to me that what John does here At about the halfway point is he summarizes his arguments so far. Now, to understand that argument, let's just step back a little bit and think about the letter of 1 John. It's a letter that is written to give assurance. So at the very end of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13, we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The letter is not primarily evangelistic to save souls, to bring them into a saving knowledge of the gospel, but rather to assure those that have salvation that they are indeed walking with God. Now the way in which we typically think about assurance today is to ask the question, how can I know that I'm saved? That's how we typically think about assurance. We ask the question, how can I know that I'm saved? And though that's not an incorrect question to ask, it's not actually the question that John is answering in this letter. When John writes to give assurance to nervous believers, believers that seemingly have gone through a trial, uh, that have been subjected to some form of false teaching, as he writes to them to give them confidence of their salvation, He's actually showing them all that they have in Christ. He's not answering merely the question, how can you know that you're saved? He's trying to show them all that it means to be found in Christ. And so what we find in 1 John is this rich, rich Christological letter that centres so much upon the truths of the gospel, the truth concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Understanding that as he ministers these truths to these believers, he will edify them, build them up, make them yet more sure of the Christ in whom they have believed. The logic, all the way through 1 John, is that as you set your eyes more and more on the Saviour, you will become more persuaded of his salvation. Which is really quite funny in a way uh, in the sense that when we think about the topic of assurance often our first response to the question how can I know I'm saved is to uh, ask the person uh, to examine their life, Uh, look for fruit in their life, uh, examine whether they're walking in the truth as the means by which they get that assurance. John comes at it from the completely different angle of saying Look more at Christ. Look more at Christ, become persuaded of your salvation, and that's how you get assurance. Now in saying that, it is true that John does show the believers that obedience is a necessary part of assurance. Uh, there is no assurance for the person walking in a path of persistent disobedience. So that certainly is a part of First John. It's just not the primary emphasis in John's letter. He shows us first and foremost Jesus Christ and his gospel. And then springing out of that, he shows us the responsibility that we have in Christ to walk a path of obedience. And that really is his two pronged attack uh, to, to, to give these believers the confidence that brings fullness of joy. Now, that summary is important to bear in mind because it really is the structure of this passage this morning. Um, And and one of the things that we really need to get our head around as we try to understand this text is essentially a grammatical argument. Uh, The grammar of the text as we see it is so, so important for our understanding of how assurance works and, and, and the flow of John's argument here. Uh, simply stated what John does in verses 12 through 14 is he gives us what I call gospel indicatives he gives us indicatives he gives us statements of fact he gives us assertions of truth as they relate to the gospel and then and only then does John give us the imperatives the gospel imperatives are found in 15 through 17 do not love the world, walk a path of holiness, but they only come after the gospel indicatives. And that flow of thought, that, that grammatical construction is so vital for us to understand, not just in, in understanding this text, but in understanding how the Christian life works. We have to cling to the gospel indicatives if we're to have any hope of obeying the gospel imperatives we must bathe our minds and our hearts in the indicatives of the gospel each and every day ministering to our own hearts and speaking into other people's lives the truth of who they are in Christ and it's from that foundation that we're then enabled to obey the gospel imperatives and to to get that order wrong as we so often do and as we are so prone to do is to distort the gospel itself to put the imperatives first and to seek to obey them without any ministering of the gospel indicatives is really to turn christianity on its head and to make it into a works-based religion and so as we walk through this text this morning we seek to minister to our hearts the indicatives of the gospel the truths of who we are in christ understanding that they are the necessary foundation by which we then obey the gospel imperatives let's look first then at these indicatives 12 through 14. a little word about structure before we dive into the text there's a lot of discussion around these verses as to who these groups are in the church the children the fathers the young men and what some people will suggest is that John is giving a blessing which is true of the fathers to the fathers he then moves to give a blessing which is different and true to the young men and so on and so forth the truth is we don't really know Who the groups are or why John ministers these particular truths to those groups. But one thing that I'm confident John is not doing. One thing that John is not doing is giving blessings or truths to groups. Which are not also true of the others in the list. So as he gives a particular truth indicative to the fathers it could also be said of the others in the list uh, the reason I say that twofold first of all the context of the letter is that John is writing to a church who had suffered a a, a false teaching uh, the teaching as far as we can tell seem to represent a, a false teaching of Christ a, a denial of his coming in the flesh which in turn led to a distortion of the gospel Which in turn robbed them of their assurance, the teaching was inherently divisive. It was inherently divisive. Uh, The false teachers left the church eventually, and quite possibly some went with them. It seemed like this congregation had suffered terribly at the cause of the false teachers. So I think the last thing John would be doing here is ministering truths to a certain group and robbing others of that truth also. Uh, if we look at the list what we also see is that as John gives these truths there's a certain degree of overlap we'll comment on the fact that he goes through the list twice and there's a certain degree of interchangeability in the truths that he ministers as we think about the truths we'll see that these are truths that are, are true for anyone who is found in Christ so far from being a divisive list it is one that actually unifies the church the children in verse 12 I do take to be the whole church Uh, this is a favorite term of John's as he goes through first John you'll see this term children over and over again and he uses that to apply to the whole congregation and so in verse 12 John begins by saying I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake this is an incredible blessing. It is the entry point into the gospel. It is where we all need to begin. As we remind ourselves of the indicators of the gospel, of what it means to be found in Christ, this is where we begin. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Just consider the fact it was once true of you that 10,000 upon 10,000 sins were listed against your name. You had only ever offended God with your thoughts and with your words and with your deeds, and they had all been recorded. And there was nothing that you could do to remove but one of those sins from against your name. And now, by virtue of the gospel, by virtue of the the death of Christ and his resurrection, your slate is now clean. There is not a single sin against your name, not one jot or tittle, not one mark, not one sin is recorded against your name. You are completely forgiven and you're forgiven more literally on account of his name, on account of his name. It is Jesus that has wrought that forgiveness for you. Now, again, Why does John choose to minister this truth at this time? We need to be careful. We're not exactly sure. But one thing that I do know is that in and of ourselves, in our fleshly sinful nature, we often distort this truth, albeit ever so slightly, such that the text might read, if we had written it, we are forgiven of our sins on account of our name and all that I mean by that is that we do have this compass within our heart that always tends towards earning our salvation before God we do have this compass within our heart that continually seeks to earn God's favour failing to recognise that we already have God's favour in Christ we already are accepted fully by God he accepts you fully this morning He will accept you fully tomorrow morning. 10,000 years from now, God will accept you fully. He cannot love you more than he does now. Not because of something you've done and oftentimes in spite of that which you have done. He loves you fully because of what Christ has done. It is because of Christ's name that your sins are forgiven. And this is the entry point into the gospel. It is by this truth that all the other gospel blessings flow. And so John moves on now to give us a different indicative. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. When you look at the verb to know in John's writings, particularly in 1st John, though also in the gospel and In 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, it's a very relational verb. John uses it to infer relationship, uh, friendship, communion. And we could more accurately translate verse 13, because you have come to know him. That is to say, because you have entered into a relationship with him. You have entered into a relationship with the living God. Again, just consider how incredible a blessing this is. There was once a time when you were separated from God, when a holy God who created the heavens and the earth, who formed and fashioned you and yet whom you had offended, you had no part with him. You could not approach him. You could not bring your prayers to him because you were a stench in his nostrils. That God has taken the initiative to bring you near. He sought reconciliation with you when you weren't looking for it. And now it can be said of everyone in Christ that you have come to know him, that you are enjoying communion with him. When I read this verse, I think often of a time when I was serving in the Navy, it seems like a another lifetime ago now, and I was on an aircraft carrier. And very early in the morning I got up to read my Bible and I would go all the way back to the, the, the back end of the aircraft carrier. And we were out in the Indian Ocean and I would just try and get some time with the Lord through his word and I would be reading the scriptures. And I remember one morning being on the back of that aircraft carrier and looking up and it just dawned upon me that there was not another person to be seen. And in fact, I could turn around 360 degrees and as far as the eye could see, there was only ocean. You could see the horizon all around. And it was just ocean, ocean upon ocean. There wasn't another vessel on the sea. And there are a few things that uh, will make you feel as insignificant. As only seeing ocean as far as you can see, you very quickly come to realize just how insignificant you are, how great and mighty and powerful God is who formed those oceans. And that feeling of insignificance was met with an understanding of just how great God's love is for me in Christ. I believe I was reading Psalm 13 on that particular morning and the psalmist talks about the steadfast love of God, how he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Just an incredible awareness of God's enormous love for us in Christ because of what his son has done. Now why this truth to this congregation at this time truly John knows and we can ponder but something that is true is that you and I in our sinful tendencies will often have some level of distrust in our hearts towards God we often fail to truly take God at his word this goes all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent comes in and he says to Eve, did God really say? He's not merely trying to leave Eve, lead Eve astray there, though no, he does, but more fundamentally he's undermining the very character of God. Did God really say? And as Adam and Eve took of the fruit, there was a level of distrust introduced into the human heart. Whereby even today we struggle to take God at His word. There is oftentimes subconsciously in our thinking, in our meditations, a reluctance to accept the truths of the gospel that God is fully for us in Christ, that He is not against us, that He loves us that we are in an ongoing, loving, knowing relationship with an almighty, holy God. I'm writing to you because you have come to know him who is from the beginning. Third gospel indicative, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. John is ministering here perhaps to a younger crowd within the community within the congregation telling them the simple truth that in christ in the gospel you are no longer enslaved to sin you have overcome the evil one think how wonderful a truth this is we read in ephesians how the whole world is in submission to the prince of the power of the air and it was once true of you before salvation that you were enslaved to sin and thereby enslaved to the evil one, that you were uh, a subject of his, that you really had no option but to sin, that no matter how hard you would try, you could never get away from your sin and you were bound to return to it over and over again. And now, John says, in Christ, by virtue of the gospel, you have overcome the evil one. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you have been set free, free to enjoy God, to enjoy the gospel, and to walk in a path of obedience. And again, there is a a truth that corresponds with this about the reality of our hearts, and that is simply that so often... Often when when we're at our lowest ebb we start to believe that we are indeed enslaved to our sin. We start to forget the truth that the gospel has broken the cords of bondage to our sin and that we are in fact subject to it. Now don't misunderstand me, though it is true that we may sin, though it is true that indeed we do sin in Christ, We are never enslaved to that sin. We are not enslaved to that sin in the way in which we once were. We go on sinning, but we now are able to obey. We're able to turn our backs on sin. And John reminds us of that as he gives us this third gospel indicative. Now, at this point, you'll notice that he repeats himself he repeats the lists at least the blessings change slightly in some cases I think we often think about 1st John as a repetitive letter you'll often hear people say 1st John is so repetitive I would be careful of saying that it's true that there's a, a cyclical nature to this letter but hardly ever, if ever, does John repeat himself word for word in exactly the same manner he's often just tweaking his argument a little bit or coming at the issue of assurance from a slightly different angle and in fact here one thing that you might notice is a tense change in the verb so 12 and 13 I am writing and then when he goes through the list a second time he says I write and that tense change is not insignificant If I could summarize it like this, the first time he goes through the list, it's almost like we're sat at his desk with him as he writes. It's a question of perspective. We're sat there right with him, hearing him minister these gospel truths to us. The second time, it's almost like we're standing back. The tense in the original language here represents more of a holistic view of what John is saying. So we stand back. It would be the tense that you would use almost to give a a summary. And so in a very clever way, John says, "Okay, now let me just summarize what I wrote for you. But do you see how his summary is far from a summary? It is actually a second attempt to minister these truths to us. He goes through them all again. And I think the point is that he is so keen to impress upon us the reality of our salvation in Christ that he can't help but to go through all of these wonderful blessings a second time his summary in inverted commas is actually a second run of these wonderful truths if I were to make a point of application from this simple observation it would be simply this That we must strive to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel each and every day. We can never grow tired of the truth of who we are in Christ. We can never get beyond the reality of the gospel in our lives. But we must do all that we can to preach to ourselves, to speak into the lives of others, the truth of the gospel. And what that means for us who are in Christ. We need to be in our Bibles. We need to be in prayer. Praying through the Gospel. We need to be singing the Gospel. We need to be memorising Scripture and committing to our own hearts and minds the truth of the Gospel. We need to be doing everything that we can to stir our affections towards christ and his saving work lest we grow dull of it lest we forget it because if we do then invariably we start to distort the flow of this argument as i said just at the beginning what we will do if we start to grow weary of the truth of who we are in christ is that we'll actually start to place the imperatives before the indicatives the imperatives will no longer flow out naturally from the indicatives but they'll start to become the grounds by which we seek for God's approval now it's twenty three hours um before we jump into fifteen through seventeen let's just think about the implications of that a little bit more if we live in such a way Where we're not clinging to the indicatives, where the indicatives are not the solid foundation of our lives from which we obey, one of two things will happen. If we are those who are fronting the imperatives and they are the grounds by which we're seeking approval from God, then we will either shrink back in our Christian life, we'll shrink back from our involvement in church will shrink back in our pursuit of our com- of communion with God. Because we will have come to understand at some level in our heart that we are working for this salvation and that we can't do it. At some level in our heart we will have acknowledged, my efforts aren't enough and they're not enough. And so the result will be a shriveling up of our Christian walk. The other possibility is that if we do place the the imperatives first and we're striving to earn God's favour forgetting the fact that we already have it in Christ that we're not laying day by day a solid foundation of the indicatives from which our obedience flows if that's not us then actually we'll step up in our Christian walk we'll demonstrate some kind of zeal whenever the church doors are open we'll be there whenever there's an opportunity to serve we'll be there if you can sign up for something you'll do it and so on and so forth why? because we've put the imperatives first and we're trying so hard to impress God outwardly it might look commendable but it's a zeal that is not fuelled by grace it is a zeal that God does not delight in and so again it is so crucial that we labour the indicatives of the gospel verses 12 through 14 and understand that the imperatives 15 through 17 flow out from that we obey in the Christian life as a means of thanking God for what he has done we obey the imperatives of the gospel as a means of showing our gratitude for what God has already done knowing that he accepts us fully he could not love us more he delights in us because of the work of Christ what are the imperatives? here at this point in the letter John simply labours the responsibility that we have as Christians to live a holy life do not love the world All the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As you walk through 1 John, there are perhaps two responsibilities in particular that John labours. As a response to the salvation we have in Christ, he goes back to often the responsibility we have to love one another and to live a holy life and here in our text this morning it's the latter one that he focuses on you must not love the world you don't love the world or the things in the world he says because that's an indication that you're not actually in the Father notice then he says in verse 16 for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world now these are familiar verses but I think what is striking here is that as John shows us the responsibility we have as Christians to walk a path of holiness, he does not single out any particular sins. He doesn't identify a particular manifestation of sin, though he could have, though there are no shortage of sins to choose from. What he actually does is get underneath the issue and goes right towards our heart What it is that drives our sin, what it is that leads us to commit sins, to offend God, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That which sits within us and prompts us towards a path of disobedience. Notice in verse 17, he says, The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And even here, I think, there is a a thematic relationship between the imperatives and the indicatives. I think even here, John is trying to show us that relationship that is found all the way through this letter, as he alludes to the ongoing nature of those who abide with God. They abide forever. The world, by contrast, is passing away. He's drawing on the same principle that is true of all of those indicatives in 12 through 14. These gospel truths that John has just given us will be true of us for all of eternity. It will never be the case that your sins aren't forgiven. It will never be the case that you don't know God. As you've been brought into salvation in Christ, these truths are true of you forever. And so as he moves to these imperatives... He shows us that the the love of the world to give our affections to anything other than God to chase after anything of the world is futile and folly because it is passing away Now, how would we apply this simple and yet emphatic call to holiness? I would say a number of things First of all We have to know what are the commands of Scripture in order to walk a path of holiness. The way in which we obey, the way in which we live a distinct and a unique life is to live a life in accordance with Scripture. Holiness in Scripture, truly understood, pertains to the idea of of set apart. I think we'll often boil holiness down to this idea of of morality, though it certainly encompasses an uprightness, a certain standard of morality, more broadly the concept is being set apart, that is to say, distinct. That's why when you look at Leviticus and a lot of the laws in the Old Testament, they're difficult to explain because sometimes what God was doing was giving a law which wasn't necessarily getting a, a moral issue. It wasn't necessarily an ethical thing that God was hitting upon in this law. He was giving the law in order to make Israel live a different life from the surrounding nations. He would often give them laws that would simply make them different and so set them apart. And then coupled with that was this ongoing call to uprightness. So if we think about holiness, As a call to live a distinct life, set apart, different from the world. We have to understand that the only way in which we'll live a holy life is to understand what scripture demands of us. To see what are the imperatives of scripture. And I say that and I labour that because it is true that we are the most biblically illiterate age in all of church history. We know our Bibles less Than anyone that has lived in church history before. And it is to our detriment. We must be people of the book. We must be reading the scriptures. And understanding what it is specifically that God is requiring of us. Only then will we be in a position to live a distinct holy life. Following on from that. We have to put off our sin. To live a holy life. To keep ourselves from the love of the world. We have to be putting off our sin. There should be a constant turning in the Christian life. Away from that which does not honour the Lord. You should be able to say that you're not the person today who you were five years ago. Ten years ago. Why? Because there has been a putting off of sin in your life. And you look different today. In Christ. By God's grace. Because you've been putting off sin and then perhaps the third part of what it means to live a holy life is to set those imperatives to work to think through the specific application of the commands of scripture in your life, we all have different circumstances, according to God's wisdom we're in the position we're in in life, we're not living in the time in which the scriptures were written and so it does take a lot of Mental work and, and wisdom and engaging with the views of, of pastors and elders and those around us in the church to know what does this command mean? How do I apply this in my life? We have to do that hard work to put the imperatives to work in our life, to give them feet that the commands of scripture would run and we would start to live a holy, distinct, unique life. One of the questions that I'd often ask the college group uh, as part of our church that we used to be part of, I'd often ask them if somebody was to come into your life and to be a fly on the wall for a day, a week, an hour, would they at the end of it conclude that you are a Christian? If they didn't know anything about you, but they just observed your life for a period of time, at the end of it, would they say, There's something different about this person. I think they're a Christian. That should be true of all of us. Why? Because we're living in a distinct way. We're living in the way in which scripture commands us to live. We're not loving the world. We're not giving our affections to the things of the world knowing that those things will pass away. The engines that drive our sinful tendencies, the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. We're doing all that we can to shut them down and to give our affections to God. And as a result, we live a life wherein we are the fragrance of Christ. Whereas people can tell there's something different about us. And it's when you bring these two strands together, the indicatives of the gospel, Bathing our minds in the truths of who we are in Christ, coupled with a path of obedience, living out a true Christian walk. When you bring those two facets together in the right order, honouring the grammar of the gospel, that is when we live a joy-filled life. You see, as you read through 1 John and I would encourage you just to read through this short letter, even this afternoon. As you read through First John, you see there is so much upon which our assurance depends. There is so much that flows out of living in an assured way. One of the first things John highlights right at the very beginning in chapter 1 is that as we are assured of our salvation, so our joy is made complete as we soak our minds and our hearts in the truth of who we are in Christ, as we obey the commands of Scripture as a response to God for what he has done for us, that is when we live a joy-filled life. And just in closing, I would say, don't underestimate the ministry that you can have amongst one another, speaking the truth in love, Reminding one another of the truth of who they are in Christ. Ministering the simple truths given here by John. Of sins forgiven. Of relationship with an all-knowing eternal holy God. Of having overcome the evil one. And the, the cords of sin and bondage having been broken. As you speak those truths and so many more two fellow believers in christ what a ministry of encouragement you will have what a ministry of building up one another you will have and then it is our responsibility to point one another towards holiness to point one another to that unique life in christ that sets us apart may we be those who are assured of our salvation That know the truth of who we are in Christ, that walk a path of holiness, and in so doing we enjoy and delight in the gospel. Let's pray together to close. Our Father, we are so thankful for the gospel by which we're saved. We are so thankful for all of the truths that are ours in Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we know you, that we're in a relationship with you, that we've overcome the evil one and we're no longer enslaved to sin. Father, this morning we delight in the fact that you take pleasure in us, that you love us, that you accept us fully, That there's nothing that we can do to make you reject us. That you are more for us than we can even understand. On and on, Lord, we could go. We praise you this morning for the truth of the gospel, which is ours in Christ. And Lord, we do understand that there are responsibilities that flow out from that. We understand that we've been called to a life of holiness. To walk a path of obedience that sets us apart from the world. And it is a fight. There is sin within us still. Desires to to tend towards things of this world. But Lord help us. Strengthen us to walk that path of holiness. And I do pray especially for all of those that go on hug lord that that grammar of the gospel would be so firmly embedded in their hearts and their minds father that the indicatives would come first that there would be a solid foundation of your grace established in their hearts and mine and it is from that that we respond with gratefulness in obedience to your word We love you and we give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.